morning and welcome to the very last peaks and troughs in this series. When things go wrong in Hong Kong, they tend to go wrong in a very specific Hong Kong sort of way. It's not that people don't have normal garden variety calamities, but when things go other than to plan here, there tends to be something very, very specific. My first guest, John Hung, is a case in point. The former managing director of Wheelock Group, champion of sport and cricket, all-round good guy and pillar of the community, he was accused of taking a bribe in return for helping somebody to climb up the ladder faster than they should have done in the jockey club. And this had all kinds of implications. There was the crime, and there was the punishment. The crime was a very Hong Kong one. It could only have really happened in a city which revolves around elitist clubs, where people love to aspire to prestigious memberships to keep up with the Joneses. Then there was the punishment. It wasn't just the sixteen months in Stanley Prison without air conditioning or fan, but there was also the added humiliation. Of the chief executive confiscating his silver Bahinia award and JP afterwards, John explains what happened. Basically, I borrowed some money from somebody for a cash flow short-term situation, and that somebody introduced someone to me, which I sponsored to the jockey club, of which you were a voting member at the time. Of which I was a voting member at the time, and the uh, the the. Opinion suggested by the court was that that man would not have left me money, right? Had I not been uh, in in some form of dangling corruption with him, simply because otherwise I would not have uh, sponsored this other person who is his friend. Right, but the judge was quite clear. He called it a nasty fall from grace, didn't he? He did because, well, uh, that uh, whether you fall from grace, quite frankly. Was were you ever in grace in the first place? <laughs> And I do not claim to be that person, albeit at that time I was pretty high up in terms of social status. Now this is the sort of thing that would happen in Hong Kong because, quite frankly, for a start, there wouldn't have been a case like that in other countries because this is a typical Hong Kong thing. Secondly, even if you were charged, another thing: who the hell is Hong? Is John Hong? Uh, but Hong Kong, being a small society, you mm. know, people live on top of each other, and so, you know, a small thing can become a big thing. The press tends to play this up. Now, the way I look at it is that the ICAC found a scapegoat and somebody like myself. Whether I was guilty or otherwise, I'm not going to comment. It's a thing of the past. Whatever it was, I've served the society by 16 months in prison. Uh, but the point is that. You know, it would not have been that big a thing anywhere else. So, why was it a particularly Hong Kong situation? Well, because everybody knew everybody,、uh, and the society is very small. People love to make some something out of,、uh, you know, a voting member is, is charged. There are only two hundred of us. You know, these、mm -hmm. voting members are very hard to find. And you know, there's a guy. You know, there were years. They were people were talking about possible corruption within the jockey club, and、uh, everybody was talking about gambling and this, that, and the other. But I didn't. It didn't come to my mind that this would would have been considered such a big scandal.、Uh, yeah. When actually, all I did was to propose somebody to the to the club, and she was already a a, a, a racing member. It's not as if she was new. I just Proposed to upgrade her to a full member,、mm. but anyway, those are the 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 nuances of 
the case itself, and I'm not going to comment in other any any more than that. Okay, but we have to say you were convicted, John, and you did go to jail for for 16 months. Yes. So what can you say you learned in jail? Was it a salutary experience in any way? It was a really deep hardship, particularly for somebody approaching my type of age, who was nearly 70 at that time. And there was no discrimination or no, no, no difference in the treatment of a 20-year-old fit young man uh, compared to a 70-year-old man like me. So there was no no air conditioning naturally, no fan, no heater, no matter how harsh the weather was. And to me, it was physically very, very testing. And, okay, you know, the physical side, you, you survived because I was a very strong sportsman at one time. I, my body could take it. Mm. It was more a mental torture than anything else because um, at that time I worried about my family. Mm, I worry about my mm. wife, you know, because I wasn't there to look after them. She'd never done without me all these years, and suddenly I'm gone. You know, there was no... The moment to be uh, very, very theatrical about this, the moment you are convicted, you've given no chance to talk to your people at all. You're just unceremoniously shackled and taken away. And so, you know, whatever you wanted to, con you know... Uh, talk to your, explain things to your family. Had to do through uh, the twice monthly visit of thirty minutes each, and the rest you do by handwritten letters, which are censored by these people. You can't say anything untoward, you know. So there was no uh, no telephones, really. There was obviously no computers, no other form of communi communication other than old-fashioned letter writing. You put in the post and the stamp, and the oven goes. That's it. So it's quite difficult in the beginning to get ourselves understood or have any form of rapport with your loved ones, your, your children, your family, or your businesses, your bankers. So it really is a hardship. Now, when you came out, I remember you'd lost lots of weight, and you were looking pretty fit. So there was a good side to this. You could help. I mean, I tell my rotund friends who come to visit me, I said, look, don't go to all these farms and health farms in, in Thailand for thousands and thousands of dollars. Just go and break some glass in the middle of a day at 7-Eleven, get yourself into Stanley. It's the best health spa there is. I mean, because, you know, the, the natural way of, of sweating and... You know, at the beginning, you don't like the food. Not that it was not nutritious, just that you're not used to it. And you invariably lose weight. And for me, it's a good thing because, you know, I went in there 97 kilos. I came out 74. I was like a rake. I mean, there was nothing in me. Now I take that as a blessing because uh, since then I have watched my weight. I'm up about low 80s now and I'm you know much easier on my knees and and my back and so on so there's something good coming out of these things whatever you go through in life there's always something good a silver lining so what would you say you lost I mean before all this you were the president of the cricket club a voting member of the jockey club a member of the Hong Kong club and and did you lose all these memberships I actually resigned from the Hong Kong club I resigned from Sheko. I resigned from the golf club to save embarrassment to my wife and my children. Obviously, the jockey club would evict me because there was a jockey club case. What I was disappointed was the eviction of 
the Hong Kong Cricket Club, in which I was president for 11 years. And my time. case was not one... Well, best way to describe it, Anna, is that whatever you look, however you looked at uh, my charge, uh, it was not... Uh, I was not a social burden. I was not a burglar, I was not a pedophile, I was not a murderer, I was not fraudulent in anything. I didn't do anybody any harm, in other words, mm. other than the fact that they categorized that as some form of accepting an advantage. So, you know, in, I would think sitting here, uh, any club, the, the, the committee would have some form of discretion within the Constitution to make exceptions mm. and I was singularly very disappointed at the cricket club for what I have done for cricket because I was president of the Hong Kong Cricket Association for years before I became president of a cricket club so th the contribution to cricket undeniable and I was disappointed that that was it but you know life goes on I'm very thankful that uh, the FCC uh, never doubted my existence and, you know, always welcomed me back. And I've never lost this, and, and it seems to be uh, a club that I spend an awful lot of time with. The great thing about this club, as far as I'm concerned, is membership. Nobody gives a toss about what you've done, what you haven't done. Well, we're in the FCC now, and I think it's fair to say we're a pretty liberal bunch. Yes, we are. So, in social terms, I mean, you, you also had a silver Bohemia star and were a J, was a JP before all this. What's been the social collateral damage for you of all of this in Hong Kong terms? Well, it's not, you know, the, the I mean, the current uh, chief executive, C.Y. Leung, decided, wrote me a letter and decided that I had to forfeit my SBS, uh, the Silver Bohemia Star, and the JP, and uh, which I had won for uh, a variety of reasons, mainly... Uh, contribution to society, which I certainly did. And if I can remember, in the British days, you know, these things are never withdrawn, you know. I mean, not never, but I hadn't heard of it being prevalent. Uh, but he did want to withdraw it, and he did. And to me, that's not the big big loss to me at all. After all, it's just a couple of, of, of alphabets or a couple of words behind my name. I, I exist as John Hong myself, that'll do. What happened to my next guest probably ranks as every expatriate wife's secret nightmare. Her husband ran off with a domestic helper. Now, this is a Hong Kong tale for two reasons. One, few cities in the world have so many single young ladies, economic migrants you could call them, who are hoping to better themselves. At least probably most of them are. There's also a Hong Kong element in that she caught her husband using that very Hong Kong implement, the mobile phone. First signs were ones that we should probably all look out for. Her husband started taking the mobile phone to the bathroom with him and then always putting it down face down on the table and then always switching the sound off. This alerted her suspicions. But when she confronted him, he denied it and said she probably had postnatal depression. Well, since her children were rather older than that, she thought that that was really rather a silly thing to say, but her suspicions were not allayed. So she carried on with her phone espionage, and she uncovered 250 WhatsApp messages. So with this method of detection, she was on the trail. Names have been changed here to protect the guilty. Last year, a year ago now, I um, 
finally was able to figure out the phone code and um, I saw a lot of WhatsApp chats with um, one particular woman and um, I figured out she was working here in Hong Kong as an Indonesian domestic helper and um, actually I confrontated him with it and um, he denied and um, you know the face the expression became hard and totally uh, emotionless and um, he denied everything and although I asked him to leave immediately and um, he in the beginning he refused after that he he went away and he started to rent himself an apartment on the other side and um, actually he um, he was trying to um, to convince me that everything was still okay and nothing was going on. But, but you weren't convinced. I was absolutely not convinced and um, I was kind of smart enough to email the WhatsApp conversation to myself and I read it all back that night and I figured out that they were having their um, anniversary, uh, I think a week before I figured it out. So that meant that they were seeing each other for more than a year already. So um, from that moment, I knew that there was nothing wrong with my postnatal depression, <laughs> but that it was definitely an intuition and that I was right. Yeah. So yeah. what did you do then? Um, well, <laughs> you can't do anything more than just face the situation. How and, did you um, feel? Um, actually, yeah, I felt bad, but on the other side, I felt relieved as well because I knew it for a long time, but I couldn't put my finger on so from the moment I figured out, I, I felt so, so relieved. And, and I actually was so relieved that it was not a depression and mm, that I could mm. actually um, pat myself on the back for... for not, not being crazy. Yeah, yeah, kind of that. And um, So you went to a counselor then, I think, but your husband wasn't willing to be open. No, absolutely. And um, we saw her twice and... Um, after the first sessions, he said to me, listen, Suzanne, um, she said, um, if your ex is not, or husband is not really open um, and honest to you and not 100% transparent, it might not work. Um, if he's not going to show you um, his phone, if it's not open and you cannot enter and you cannot check and he will not show you flights and hotels and whatever then you will not gain back trust and you need that at the moment to build up a new relationship you need to be 100% transparent mm -hmm. and you need to be transparent both and she said as long as he's not 100% transparent it's not going to work although we tried you know in the beginning I wanted to go back to Europe immediately with the kids wanted to grab them on a flight go back but later on I you know I still loved him kind of and um I didn't want to take the kids away from their dad, but, um, and, and I decided to give him a second chance. So we spent summertime in Europe together, and that went well, actually, and we tried to get back closer together. And I don't think he still had lots of contact with the Indonesian helper, but I wasn't sure because I couldn't check the phone anymore. But then... But then he moved back in with us in August um, after our long summer holiday and um, he got himself a new iPhone and that needed an, an update on the computer and while he was having a shower I tried to, um, to get back in the, um, in the phone and luckily there was an easy access, there was an easy code on and it was not supposed, I was not supposed to see it I think but I was 
I think an app hanging in the cloud and was back in the um, in the WhatsApp, and it was not lying. And um, there were, were things in that I was definitely sure that there was something going on with another woman again. So I confronted him again, and he denied. And um, he started crying, and he said, "How can you think that I have another woman?" And we are we are in our second chance and i still love you and i'm trying to do my best and i wanted to give 100% even more i wanted to give 200% and please believe me etc and then i said you know what i'll get your phone and i'll show you what i just read and then he said no 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 i'll get it myself i get it myself so okay you get it yourself then he got his phone and he showed him my um, he showed me his phone and then he said where is it and it was gone. And I said, of course, it's gone. But I took photos with my phone. So I sent him a WhatsApp with the, the photos. And then you called the lady, I guess. And uh, later on, I called her because he still denied. And, and I think it, it, it took him 30 minutes to admit that he was seeing, indeed, another woman. And this time? And I asked him, what is she? Is she a colleague? No. Is she a Filipina? Said, yes. And then I asked him, please don't tell me it's a domestic helper. And he bent his head and he said, yes, she is. And I, I freaked out. And um, when he was out, I called her and I said, listen, um, this is me. I'm married to that guy. And um, I just want to know how long do you know each other? And um, where did you meet? And she said, well, because he said they met in a restaurant in, um, in Hong Kong. And I couldn't believe that because, you know, everybody knows helpers cannot afford themselves expensive dinners here in restaurants in Hong Kong. And even though they can, they won't spend their dinners in expensive restaurants. So you suspected it was a one chai bar? That was what I expected. And she admits that it was one of the bars. And um, I asked her, how long do you know him? And she said that they knew each other since February. So he got his second chance. And meanwhile, he still was seeing a Philippine domestic helper. So, so that was the trust busted. And now you're divorced. I am divorced. And, um, well, she moved in with him as well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm... I'm I'm okay with that. So do you think these ladies are just preying on these Western guys or are these Western guys weak or what's happening? I think those uh, women are just trying to find a golden ticket out. They try to find a Western guy because they really think that those guys are rich. Even though they might not be rich, in their opinion, we as European are all rich. And um, that means that if they can get involved to those kind of men that that means that good education good health care just a golden ticket a golden way out and um, that's what they all want so for a domestic helper a western guy is like winning the lottery it is it is and um, I'm going out more nowadays um, and I notice myself that even though men wear wedding rings in, in bars in one chai or Lang Fong or whatever they don't mind. They try to, to get themselves attached to a man. And, you know, they all aim for the highest. And they think that they will leave their wife for them. And, you know, in some situations, they do. <laughs> so when Regina Ip said the other day that uh, domestic helpers were targeting Western guys, you think maybe she was right? I think she's definitely right. Absolutely. That was a real example of an often told but usually apocryphal story in Hong Kong. My last guest, Kim Robinson, 
is a classic example of triumph over tragedy. Hong Kong's celebrity crimper, or should we say, hairstylist, did phenomenally well in the earlier part of his career, peaking with an IPO, or what should have been an IPO, in 1997. But unfortunately, it hit the rocks and the financial crisis at the same time. But he bounced back, in true Hong Kong style. 1997, great fanfare, the great great handover. British left, the Chinese came in. Without a hitch, it was fantastic. We were riding. We had six salons in Hong Kong, under the brand Le Salon Orient.、Uh, we were doing the creme de la creme.、Um, I was with all the stars. I was driving around with fancy cars and living the fabulous dream. Wonderful. We were going for a public listing.、Uh, we had we were involved in six countries with、uh, very big partners. Asia was. Really happening. It was the Asian dream. It was just booming, booming, booming.、Uh, Princess Diana on one arm,、uh, uh, Anita Moy, Asian cantor pop star on the other. I was really with the who's who of society, and we were really set. We were on about to do the road show. Everything was really happening. We were going to launch in Hong Kong. We had the CFO, CEO, everybody hired. It was all ready to go. Coming from an uneducated background, I was put through the ringer when it comes down to how we're going to work this、um, strategy with the launch. Very exciting time. We had schools, magazines, products, salons about to do the big boom. CNN gave a 20-minute interview on me on television about we were going to be the new thing. Asian crisis started falling. Non-Hong Kong. It was all happening, '98, '99. It was sort of really rocky times. A lot of it, partners in the other Asian areas started to get cold feet about the idea of what we were doing. Well, push comes to shove, dominoes falling. Overnight, this wonderful dream became a nightmare.、Um, like dominoes falling. Like I, 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 I suddenly from being up there with the gods, suddenly I was persona non grata and didn't want it. Wasn't going to happen. So, pushed comes to shove. We decided that we should shut down the public listing, but with all the rules and regulations of going through a listing, which I wasn't aware of, obviously, you have to have people on contracts for five-year minimum con-、uh, term. So I had to buy people out of the contracts. We had to pay out people. We had to hire people to fix everything. We had a cash flow crisis because at that time we hadn't had the funds come in. We were actually in the, the pre-launch time. Just at the worst moment. Well, it it was a difficult time, but I thought that they, my people would handle it. Well, thinking and wishing and hoping is one thing, but reality wasn't to be.、Um, so we shut down all the public listing. Everything was going back in Hong Kong. I had an accident in the gym. My right arm was muscle was ripped out of it. I couldn't work for three months. At the same time. A young lady who was a client of the salon、uh, in, in Causeway Bay walked through the glass window in the front, and our insurance wouldn't cover it because we had changed the glass and had put non-tempered glass in.、Oh. And、uh, we settled out of court, and we had a cash flow crisis. Basically, we could not、uh, survive the, the the hiccup. And, so perfect、uh, storm. Well, it was、uh, a nightmare at the time. Actually, I, I couldn't imagine that would happen. From being a, a 40 million US dollar turnover, a huge business, we had so much going on. It was out of my control, most of it, but it was so big. To, to being shut back down to into liquidation, it was like the most 
uh, humiliating experience mm. because I wasn't prepared for it. No one mm. gears you up for failure. No. Everyone says it's called win. Everyone looking for the gold medal. Everyone praises the winners and never talks about the losers. But when you, you actually lose, you're not geared for it. Crisis management, they call it. I didn't have any experience of so it. So what did you do? Well, I had so many friends that were giving me advice some of the big players in, in the market said to me, look, chop it off at the roots and regrow it again. But I was determined to keep it. I was all about face, all about pride. My baby that was 18 years old called Le Salon Orient was the cream of the society when mm. it came to grooming. We had all the tie ties and all the chic women from the, the parkables of the peak, whatever, were coming to the salon in their fancy cars with their maids, with their evening gowns. I mean, I wasn't going to throw that away. So how did you rebuild it back to where you are now? Well, you know, I had to accept reality. I had to close. I went through the humiliation with the press. I went through everything. We shut it down. I actually then decided to do something different. I took a, a long talk with my mother who said that I built it all in the first place. Why, don't, why, why are you coming home? I was ready to give up because there was a lot of nasty things that were said and mm. I was obviously battered and hurt. So here and we are uh, today. It's, it's, it's going gangbusters again. Well, you know, I went through a, pr a process of reevaluating what I did wrong. And I think it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I think sometimes... Um, making mistakes when you learn from a mistake you actually become a better person they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger mm. well I think in my case and I've seen it happen uh, on many of my friends that when you actually make a mistake on a grand scale like that you reevaluate what's important in your life and the people that are important mm. and and restructure it again hopefully that you don't end up the same thing today I'm very aware of what's going on in the business we're about to embark on a most amazing adventure with a new generation salons we're opening soon that are really going to take the market on. We're going to reinvent the industry. In I Hong Kong or Hong regionally? Kong. It'll come out in Hong Kong first and then we'll take it into to other Asian cities. And it's a re, 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 rethinking of how we operate the business, rethinking how the consumer today is and what she requests from the hair salon experience. Uh, Price-wise and also about the, the quality of the work and actually how she can be communicated to. Right, so you so, basically crashed, burned and bounced back even stronger. Well, I hope so. I do feel stronger. Um, we've built a, a brand here um, under my own name and um, it's very successful. We operate in two countries and we're, we've been asked to go into other countries, which I'm not so keen about now. I want to do it step by step. I don't want to do anything again like I did in the first way, but... It's definitely been a, a, an experience, and I think it's a positive experience. That was Kim Robinson, famous for appearing in Hong Kong Tatler more times than his celebrity clients. Thanks very much to the brave souls who took part in this week's programme. So for one last time, from me, Anna Healy-Fenton, bye-bye. Yeah.